What if I told you this morning that you're an actual friend of the living God? Or if you're not, that you could be a friend of the living God. And honestly, with that statement, we could just sit here for the next hour and just meditate on what that is, what that means, and we would still not exhaust the depth of that concept, right? To be a friend of the living God, can you imagine? That an eternal being, one that has no beginning and no end, an all-powerful being who can create complexity beyond our imagination from absolutely nothing, than an all-sovereign being who governs, governs every single molecule in the entire universe, which is bigger than we even know, that an all-knowing being that knows every single thought in your mind and every deed of your life, that that type of incomprehensible being would, would come to you and address you among all the billions of people on the earth and say, you I call a friend. Wow. Just stop and consider that for a moment. Allow your mind to be blown. Allow your heart to be filled with joy if you're counted as a friend of God. And in fact, the truth is even greater than being a friend of God. If you think about it and go to the next level, you can be a son or a daughter of God, right? Adopted into the family. And not only that, but heirs of all the promises that we have in Scripture. Though for those who love him, for who are called according to his purpose. Friend of God, son or daughter of God, heirs of God's kingdom. It's amazing stuff. And it's easy if you, you were raised in the church or you're, you've been in the church for a long time to just skim over that and say, oh, okay. But those are amazing things to consider. It's no wonder the great Jonathan Edwards urged this one thing. Whenever he got up in front of an audience to preach or teach, he would, he would encourage them with this. Let it be our first love to enter into an everlasting friendship with Christ that never shall be broken. That ought to be the goal and the purpose of every single human soul born into this world. And don't we sing about this all the time? What a friend we have in Jesus, right? Jesus, what a friend for sinners. We sing those words. We, we love that truth. But here's the thing. Jesus is not automatically everyone's friend. I know that makes some people uncomfortable, but it's, it's true, right? Most people, regardless of what they might claim or whatever lip service they pay, to knowing Jesus, to dropping his name at certain points, you know, that benefit them. In spite of that, most people are far from being his true friend. In fact, if they're not his friend, they're his, they're his enemy. And they're deeply deceived about their status before the living God. That's most people. So the Bible is filled with both bad news and good news, right? The bad news comes before the good news. The bad news is that Left to your own devices, to your own self-centered desires and choices and sin, you will someday pass into eternity as an enemy of God, and you do not want that. God is the worst enemy to have because he is a perfectly righteous judge who sees everything, knows everything, and he has the final say. That's the bad news. But the good news is that same righteous judge has made a way for you and I to reverse course, to move from darkness to light, to move from an enemy of his to a friend of his. That's the gospel, isn't it? So this morning, as we look at a very special passage that many of us have read many times and know well, I want you to consider what Jesus is about to say in two very distinct ways. First, I want you to consider Jesus' words for your own soul. 
and to ask the question, based on what Jesus says in this passage, am I his friend? It starts there. But if you are his friend, I want you then to consider the souls of all the unsaved people in your life, the people that you come into contact with regularly, right? Friends and family members and coworkers, that person you've gotten to know who serves you your coffee or brings you your food at a restaurant, all the people who are unsaved that you come into contact with. And I want you to consider how you might communicate to them what it means to be a friend of God. What does that look like in your life? How can you communicate that truth to them? So this morning, I want the Holy Spirit, let, let the Spirit guide you into truth on both of those levels, both for your soul and for those around you. Amen? Grab your Bibles. Let's go. John 15. We're back in John. Woo! It's only been two years or more. But we took a couple weeks off to celebrate the Reformation. Oh, man. I did not get the reaction I was hoping for, but that's okay. Thanks anyway uh, for allowing me uh, to be a historical nerd for two Sundays. But we're back in John 15. We left off at verse 11 three weeks ago. So today, 12 to 16. So real, real quick context. You know this, right? We've, we've walked through it before. Recall that Jesus and his disciples, now 11 guys, right? Because Judas has now run off to do the final step of his betrayal. This group of men, 11 guys with Jesus leading, they've, they've left that upper room in the upper part of the city of Jerusalem. And they're now walking through the streets of the city and out into the Kidron Valley and they're headed towards the Mount of Olives, right? To the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they walk through the streets and as they come up in the Kidron Valley, Jesus has been teaching them along the way, right? And he's, he's relayed some amazing truths already in this chapter. Let me just summarize some of them. He said, I am the true vine. This beautiful agricultural metaphor. My father is the gardener. And every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, that gardener is going to remove it, he says. And every branch that does bear fruit, the gardener's still, going to, still got work to do. He's going to prune it back so that it produces even more fruit. So the gardener's active, right? Apart from me, Jesus said, you can't produce anything of spiritual value. You'll, you'll produce no spiritual fruit apart from me. And for those branches who don't abide in me and therefore don't produce fruit... They're of no use except to be gathered up at some point and cast into the fire. Very strong warning from the Lord. My father, Jesus said, is glorified when branches bear much fruit because it proves that they are true disciples. Keep my commandments, he said, and you will abide in my love in the same way. And this is such an amazing truth. You will abide in my love in the same way that I abide in the father's love. Beautiful truths, right? Now, we pick up the text in verse 12. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves or servants, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And you can read that as that your fruit would last so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So here, here's what, how I want to work through this this morning. We're going to come back to verse 12 at the end of the message because that verse, the command to love, is the overarching key to this entire passage, to know what it means to love. So first of all, we're going to look at a couple of things that 
describe in very obvious ways what it means to be a friend of Jesus, what it, what it looks like. And as we go through this, I want you to say, does this look like my life? And you can start right there in verse 14 with this, this very straightforward statement, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because, first of all, it is, it is so simple and so clear. It's not like, well, well, I see six different ways to interpret this, Jeff. This is so simple and so clear. And by the way, the last time we were in John, we actually covered this very same principle. So I'm not going to go too long on it, but let me just, let me just state the obvious here. A, a true disciple always follows his master and does what his master says to do. It cannot be any other way, right? Can you imagine a first century Jew saying, yeah, see that guy over there? That's my rabbi, and he's great, but I don't really do what he says to do because it's my life. Can you imagine a first century Jew saying that? You'd say, no, it doesn't work that way. You're not his disciple, and that would be true. So why do so many people today do this with Jesus? Have you, have you noticed this? How many people will claim Jesus but not do what he says? I mean, not, it's not even in the ballpark. It's not even striving. It's just like, I've got some spiritual fire insurance in Jesus, but I don't actually have to follow him, do I? Yeah, he's a really interesting historical person. I'm a big fan of his teaching. Love his wise sayings. And so, yeah, I'm a disciple, but look, it's my life. I'm going to do, do what I want to do. No, it doesn't work that way. You are not his disciple. He makes that clear here. So that's one obvious error we can fall into, claiming to be a disciple but not acting like a disciple. But then there's an error on the other side that we can fall into as well, and it's just as dangerous. You find people saying this, I'm super religious and I, I work really hard to try to fulfill every command that Jesus taught, and that makes me his friend. I'm his friend because I do all these things to please him. No. All that makes you is somebody that's been deceived into a system of what we call works righteousness. This idea that if I do enough things, then I somehow earn his friendship. I earn his love and approval. And just coming out of our Reformation series, perhaps that sounds like a, a Roman Catholic friend that you have or somebody in your family who's, who's been taught that and caught up in that lie. And it's, guys, it's a horrible deception. It, it has a facade of godliness, doesn't it? But it's completely empty of biblical truth. Why? Because even our best efforts and our best works fall so short of the standard that we have to meet if we're ever to live with God for eternity. So short. And it takes humility to acknowledge this, right? That we can't get there on our own. That even all the best of our works are just filthy rags. If they're laid side by side with the standard that God requires to be saved, all of our best stuff, our best stuff from the best of us, is just filthy. It's just rags before him. So that's why the reformers shouted it from the rooftops. They saw the truth in the scriptures. Salvation is only possible, only possible by God's grace alone, period. Only he can impute to us the type of righteousness we need to have our sins forgiven. If you're going to do it on your own, you are going to, man, you are going to fall so short. It'd be like, I've heard the story, of like, I'm going to jump over the Grand Canyon. Okay. And you might get further than some people. But you all go splat. I mean, it's a pretty vivid picture, right? But it's true. Filthy rags. So the only way to be a friend of God is to come to him as a helpless sinner in need of grace. And when we do that, we know that God has drawn us to that point 
we truly come to him because he's drawn us, because he's chosen us and called us and regenerated our hearts, and he brings us to life then. Then we become his friend. He, he actually grants us the gift of faith so that we can turn to him and believe and be saved. And, and that's my testimony, and I hope it's yours as well, that God did that work from beginning to end. So make sure you catch this. Our doing what Jesus commands doesn't make us his friend. Obeying his commands is the natural outflow of a person who's been saved by grace alone and is now connected to the vine and bearing fruit. That's where true obedience comes from. Make sense? Okay, second thing that identifies someone as a friend of Jesus. It's in the last phrase of verse 15. Look at this last phrase of verse 15. This is an amazing truth as well. All things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Wow. This is another one of those sit back and meditate on statements. All things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you, my disciples. I really want you to stop and consider what a privilege that is. Because this is obviously spoken to those 11 men, but it extends to us as disciples today, right? Think about somebody that you would love to be really close to. Like who's beyond you in life, but you're like, oh, if I could just, man, get to know that person. Maybe it's a celebrity or a, a, you know, a singer or an athlete that you've admired. Maybe it's a president or a congressperson. Maybe it's a preacher, somebody who's really impacted your life. And you're like, if I could just get the opportunity to be really close to that person. I could speak freely. I could have like those really like personal conversations and ask really inside questions, right? And get all kinds of cool information. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it, right? Can you picture that person in your mind? Like if they came over to the house for dinner and I had like three hours to just sit and, and, and sort of hear their heart and ask them questions. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I have inside information from God the Father. Inside information, details from the mind of God himself, and I'm passing them along to you. You have the secrets of life in the universe. I'm passing them on to you. As my friend, you have access to this. That's amazing stuff, that finite creatures like us would be given those things. Access to the truth about life in the universe from the lips of God himself. So we know how the world began, right? Everybody's scrambling. How did things start? We've been told. We know how we got here. We know about our own nature because we have inside information. We've been told what our purpose is in this life. We've been told what the creator's plan for history is. So we call this inside baseball. Have you heard that term? We're like behind the scenes. We have inside information about this. We've been told about life beyond these mortal bodies, what heaven's going to be like, how our sins can be forgiven, how we can live forever, and so much more. You and I possess all that because Jesus said, I make it known to you as my friends. Now, in times past, God's people didn't have all that, did they? They didn't have the full measure of revelation because God the Son hadn't come in the flesh yet. In the Old Covenant, we see type and we see shadow and we see prophecy, right? But so many things remain to be seen. That's what makes our life under the New Covenant so blessed. We are so privileged, right? We have the very revelation of God. The mind of God, it's in your hand right now. Are you kidding me? But we take it for granted, don't we? You've got it. It's sitting in your lap or on your phone right now. All this inside information. And every day, we can wake up and we can read it again. 
and study it and meditate upon it and let it sink deep into our souls. Let it transform us from within as the Spirit applies the truth of the Word to our lives. And over time, we see that we're being transformed by that time, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. We're insiders to the mind of God because of what he's done. Now, here's the fundamental reason why that change has happened. Look, look back at the beginning of verse 15 now. Here's the fundamental reason why we now have that information. Jesus says, No longer, disciples, do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. That is a massive change from slave to friend. Massive. Now, if the idea of slavery is a stumbling block to you, I know this is a big thing in the world today. Ah, oh, The Bible talks about slavery. If it's a stumbling block, let me just share a couple things, then we'll get back on track. Number one, slavery was pervasive in the first century Roman Empire. It was everywhere. It was just a commonly accepted way of life. Listen, the Bible doesn't put a stamp of approval on slavery. It simply deals with the human condition within the reality that slavery has always existed on earth. I can't say that more clearly. Slavery still exists today. Slavery existed in every culture for all time, and it still exists today. So the Bible deals with the reality of that and says, here's human nature in the midst of this, this wicked institution we call slavery. It doesn't approve of it. It's just a, a brute fact of history that nearly a third of the people within the boundaries of the Roman Empire were a, was a slave in some form. A third. And it's not like the American experience. We like to make, draw these parallels. But, but in the Roman Empire, slaves came from every country. They were of every race. They came from every background. So it's not the same thing as the American experience. So we've got to be really careful before we draw incorrect parallels. Okay, that's my aside. Back to the main point. I call you friends, Jesus says. Now, why would he say that to these 11 men on that night? Well, because up to this point, in a sense... These 11 guys were sort of like slaves. Jesus said, do this, and what did they do? They did it. Because you're my rabbi, you're my master. They, they didn't get the why behind it, the motivation always. In fact, they were often confused, right? They just did it because he's their rabbi. And the fact is, in the ancient world, that was just an expectation of a slave. You don't ask questions. It's similar. I know we have a couple guys in here, maybe a few ladies, who were in the military, you know, when you go to boot camp as a private, you're basically being trained to be a slave, right? You just do what the sergeant says. Do you ask questions? Not if you don't want to run <laughs> or do burpees for six hours. No, you're essentially being trained to be a slave. You obey orders, you do it right away, and you do it without questions. And I've heard people say, if the sergeant walks up and says, private, I want you to dig a hole here four by four, you just do it, and then if he says, now fill it back in, you do it. And you don't expect to get a reason why. <laughs> right? You just do it. Now, in the ancient world, the same is true of a slave. You just did what the master says. But if your status went from slave to friend, everything changes. And by the way, that did happen in the, in the Roman period. People would work their way out of slavery into being a friend of the master. So this was a reality when this was written in the scriptures. Now, if you become a friend, the master just doesn't just command and say, do this. He says, here's why I want you to do this. That changes everything. Within the context of a friendship now, the master provides his friends with access to things like, like motives and process. 
He discusses his plans with his friend. The reasoning behind it. That's what Jesus is announcing here. No longer will these 11 guys be in the dark, struggling to understand what Jesus is doing, what he's teaching, right? And we've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. At every stage, they seem confused. They're like, why are we doing this? Jesus is like, we're just going. Follow me. But now, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is going to change. All things are going to be made clear to these disciples. And friends, listen, this helps us to account for this massive change between the disciples in the gospel narratives and the brilliance they show later on when they're teaching, when they're preaching, when they're writing down the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? How they go from clueless to brilliant? Jesus says, I've told you everything the Father wants me to tell you, and the Spirit is coming to remind you of all those things. That's why. That's how we, that's how we, we basically explain this massive transformation. Now, friend of Jesus, here's, here's my caution that I always have to talk about when this, we have to be careful we don't overinterpret what that means. In the past, you've heard me warn you about becoming so familiar with Jesus as a friend that we end up disrespecting him. Let us not do that. Even though Jesus elevates the disciples from slaves to friends, we can't get it twisted. We are not his peer. He is not our buddy or our homeboy or whatever ridiculous thing that's being put on a t-shirt these days. No. Jesus' authority in our lives is not in any way diminished by the fact that he elevates us to friend. Be careful with that. And we see this very clearly. Men like Paul and Peter and James continue to refer to themselves in the scriptures as slaves of Jesus Christ, don't they? And they understood this text, that they were his friends. They still referred to themselves in this way. They delight in calling themselves slaves of Christ. Why? Because they understand they don't belong to themselves. That they've been purchased at a very costly price. They understood that. We need to understand that, right? We are friends of Jesus, but we're still his slaves because he's redeemed us with his own precious blood. So we got to make sure we stay balanced on this thing. Make sense? So before we move on, don't miss the privilege that Jesus is communicating here. If you're found in Christ this morning, you're a friend of the king of the universe. Wow. You enjoy the privilege of being informed about his ways, informed about his thinking, and you have in your possession the truth about life in the universe. Wow. And because you know the heart of your king, that ought to bring about in you a desire both to love him and to obey him because he's made himself known to you. Amen? Okay, one final identifier of a friend of Jesus. It's in verse 16, and it's an amazing comfort to our soul. Verse 16. Listen, if you're a friend of Jesus this morning, it's because you were chosen by him. And not just chosen to sit still in your chair as a saved person, but you were chosen with a great purpose in his mind. Look at verse 16 again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. It's so important to realize that these 11 disciples were not called friends and given access to the mind of God because they were somehow wiser than every other person living in Palestine at that time. They weren't. It's not that they were more godly. You know, Jesus walked up the shore of the Sea of Galilee and said, I'm looking for the most godly guide. No. No. It's not that they sinned less than all the other people in Palestine at the time. 
No. As God has done throughout human history, in his sovereignty and for his good pleasure, he chose these particular men. Can we explain that? To some extent, the scripture gives us these reasons, but this is from the mind of God. This is some of the mysteries of God. He chose these particular men and he didn't choose others. That's a hard thing. But this is a truth we read about all through the scriptures. The principle is God's unconditional election. I specifically chose you, Jesus tells these men. Now, why is that important to say? D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, I think he, he, he says something right here about the timing. He said, this is a quote from him. He says, often in John's gospel, election is introduced just at the point where human arrogance may need a gentle lesson in humility. God's perfect timing. So these guys could have been thumping their chest and going, yeah, I'm a friend of God. You peasants, you suckers, look at us. We're friends of God. We've got inside information. You should want to be like me. And so Carson says, no, there's no room for boasting here because you were chosen. You didn't earn this. You weren't more godly than others. If you're a friend of Jesus, it's only because he chose you. Because he chose you, you were then granted the ability to turn to him and trust in him. But we gotta make sure we get that order right or else we're gonna fall into really serious error, right? God chose us before we chose him. Now, if the origin of our salvation is God's choice, make sure you see in this verse that the goal and purpose of his choosing you is fruit-bearing. It's fruit-bearing. I chose you and appointed you, and that word there is very important. In the original Greek, it talks about being put or placed in a very specific spot. I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit. So you could translate it like this. I chose you and strategically placed you where you're at so that you would bear fruit. I placed you there. And he's still doing this today, right? It wasn't just the 11 guys in the first century. He's doing this today. Ephesians 2.10 is such a beautiful passage. God has made you his masterpiece, his workmanship, so that we would go out and walk in the very works that God has, has prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that we would walk in those things that he's called us to do. He's chosen you, he's saved you, he's called you as friends so that you might go out now and glorify him and build the kingdom through fruit bearing. And he has you here at Oak Hill for that purpose. And you might be thinking, well, look, I'm a student, you know, I, where's God gonna take me next? We're always looking forward, aren't we? Have you noticed this? We love to look forward. Where's God? I don't know where God's gonna take you, but I do know this, you're here now. In this body, in this local church, and God says, I've placed you there. I've appointed you there to go and bear fruit. So let's be about bearing fruit where God has placed us. Amen? Let's go back up to verse 12 now. This is really the big idea. This is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. The fourth characteristic of being a friend of God. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Wow. It's a hard one, right? We've heard this before, back in chapter 13, right? Just two chapters ago. On the very same Passover night, by the way, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And that was the new part, right? It's a new commandment. Look, you go back to Leviticus 19. You'll see over, you'll see over and over again in the scriptures, God says love, 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 love. But Jesus says, this is a new commandment, love as I have loved you. That changes the game, right? 
By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, he says, if you have that type of love for one another. Now, we'll, understand, we'll get to what that means in just a second. Now, why would Jesus repeat a command like this on the very same night? Why would he say it multiple times, multiple ways? Well, because he's the master teacher, right? And because he knows something about his audience, and we know this as well, that we're often hard of hearing when it comes to doing hard things. Right? We're hard of hearing when it comes to hearing hard truths that require us to do difficult things. We're a stubborn bunch of sinners. We often hear what we want to hear. We all do this when we listen to sermons or we, or we watch a video or teaching on YouTube or whatever. We hear the things that, you know, it's called confirmation bias. The things we want to hear, we're like, ooh, I love that. Don't like that. Don't like that. But that, I really like. Why? Because we're presupposed to like that. But this one's a hard one, to love one another. And let's be honest, it is hard. Dying to self in order to love others is a very difficult thing to do. It's hard for all of us. So we're all in this boat together. We don't need to look around and say, boy, am I the only person struggling with this? This is hard for all of us. So as the master teacher, what Jesus does, he uses repetition to get his point through. He says, love one another. Love one another. And one more thing, love one another. You're like, we get it. Yes, but did you hear it? Did you listen to it? There's an old saying, it takes more than one swing of the hammer to sink a nail all the way in. And so Jesus is going to keep hammering on this same nail. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be my friend, you have to love your fellow believers. It is not optional. Too many people in the church have, have just thought, this is optional. I come to church to be fed. I come to church for me. I, I walk in thinking, what's, what's, what's here for me? And they haven't thought about others. They haven't even thought about loving others. That's been too prevalent in the church, and we've got to correct it. The implication here is that love should be what motivates everything that we think and do as Christ followers. Our love for God, our love for Christ, our love for all those who belong to him. And verse 13 says Jesus sets the pattern for us, Right? He always sets the pattern for us. He never asks anything of us that he hasn't done first. He said, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Can you go further than that? Is it possible to go farther than laying down your life? No, it's giving everything. And, God, and Jesus says, that's the pattern. Now, I know he's speaking to these 11 guys because he wants to lay out a truth that's really important for them because he's about to be arrested so he wants them to know this. Soon you're going to see me arrested. You're going to see me suffer. You're going to see me die on a cross. And when you see that, here's what I want you to think. My master has died in my place for this reason, because he loves me to the end. He loves me to the full. I want you to think that. So I'm telling you in advance, I will lay down my life and there is no greater love. This is the pattern I want you to follow. Now, we've discussed this in the past. Love is constantly misdiagnosed and mis, misidentified in our culture today. It's, it's, it probably, I think it's more songs have been written about love than anything else. It's the most discussed subject, the most diagnosed subject, and yet the world has it so wrong, right? They just have it wrong. So we look at Christ's example, and we consider all the factors that go into his sacrificial death on that cross, and we see that above everything in this world, Jesus Christ has exquisitely defined what love is. 
Man, you want to talk to somebody about your faith? Point them to that. Because we're all searching for love, right? Say, look, Jesus has exquisitely defined what love is. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. Here's how we've defined it in the past. I'll put it up on the screen. Love is a caring, self-sacrificing commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one being loved. That, in a nutshell, is what Jesus did for us. He sought our highest good, our salvation, and he gave everything to that end. That's what he did for us. And so that's our example and our pattern to follow. In fact, we read it even in our call to worship this morning, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. You're like, oh, inside information from the mind of God. Oh, we have a definition. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, period. And therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. How many times have you heard that verse and just moved along, right? We all have, like, oh, that's a beautiful verse. What's for lunch? No, consider the height and the depth of what that passage calls us to. It's not optional. The vine metaphor helps us in this. What is it that we as branches receive from the vine? If you want to stick with that agricultural reference, there's this divine sap of love that flows through the vine. Is sap the right word? I don't even know. Gardeners? The sap that flows through the vine, it flows into us if we're connected to the vine, right? And now we have this sap. And the point of being connected to the vine and to have that love of God flowing through us is that we bear the type of fruit that loves others, right? We bear the type of fruit that nourishes other people and strengthens other people. Because we're connected to that vine, we're receiving his divine love, we pour it out, we radiate it out to other people. That's the point. You're like, oh, I thought abiding in the vine was just about me. Well, it is to some extent, but it doesn't stop there. It can't stop there. It's got to go out to others. And it doesn't matter if you're shy. I, I used to make this excuse when I was a brand new believer. I'm such an introvert. And I am. I'm so shy. I don't like talking to people. It's not optional. It's not like, okay, here's, here's the commands for extroverts and here's the command for introverts and, and the people that really are good in crowds and the people that like to stay at home. It's, it's one command for all of us. And, and, and the Spirit will strengthen us. If this is your weak point and you're like, like the old Jeff who just struggled with people, I'm up here preaching this morning. It's, it's, it's wild. That's supernatural. It's a miracle. If Ask my wife, if you'd know me 30 years ago, you'd say there's no way that guy would ever be preaching. I just didn't like people. I didn't want to be with people. You can ask Darren. He, he's known me for 30 years. But we get over that by the Spirit. The power of the Spirit will change us and transform us to be those people who love others. Now, I know it's easier said than done. I get it. It's hard. But let's not make excuses for why we can't do this. In fact, remember... Remember the group of men that Jesus was called to love, his closest friends. This was not an easy group of people to love. I mean, this is a ragtag group of misfits that we got, you know, we got a tax collector and we got a, a zealot and we got all these interesting guys thrown together and, okay, love them, right? One becomes a traitor. Jesus loves them, right? And, and by the way, in the text, does Jesus not express frustrations with them? Yeah, it's a reality. He, he, 
expresses frustration and grief about how little faith they have, about how their slowness of heart, but he never stopped loving them. He never gave up on them. In fact, he loves them to the end. He loves them to the full. That's our pattern. That's our example. Serious question. How many times, you don't have to raise your hand, how many church relationships in your past have you abandoned because that person just offended me or irritated me or frustrated me and you just sort of wrote them off? How many times have you done that? I think it's instructive to note that when Jesus had difficulty with his disciples, not only did he not walk away, he didn't, he didn't just grit his teeth and try to be nice to them either, because that's not the answer. Sometimes we say, well, that's, that's the answer. Just grit your teeth and smile and, and act like you like them. No. It was the Father's perfect love for him that strengthened him to persevere in his love for others. Have you ever asked the question, why does God the Son have to go off and pray? Why does God the Son have to go to a hillside in Galilee and spend time with his Father? To be immersed in the Father's love. Because that's what then causes him to, to come back strengthened to love others, right? In the flesh, the God the Son needed that. And so that's a clue for us. When we're struggling to love others in the body, before we walk away, before we, we write them off because we're irritated or offended, the key to loving them and fulfilling this command is to go back to Christ's love for you and be filled with that. Be filled with that. And not, don't just think about the cross, that's huge, but think about every single day how he cares for you and provides for you and forgives you and disciplines you and encourages you like a good father. All these things that he does for you. We come back and guess what? Now we're strengthened and nourished to love others even when it's hard because we're immersed. We're biting in the vine and we're immersed in the love of Christ. That's the supernatural way that it's done. Let the love that comes from the vine strengthen you to go out and do what is clearly supernatural. Things you can't do in your own strength. Look at these passages. Paul writes, putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And then Peter adds, above all, maintain a constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, listen. Doing that, that is a supernatural thing. You cannot do that alone. You cannot do that in your strength. You need to be filled with the love of Christ, abiding in the vine, letting that sap flow through you so that you can love others when it's really, really hard. That, that's the answer. That's the answer. And listen, when there's real sin, I'm not, I, I don't want to paint a too rosy picture when there's real sin that can't be overlooked and you need to confront somebody, we still confront with the motivation of what? Love. Always love. We go to our brother and sister. We speak the truth in what? in love, and then we bear with the burden of them, their, their burden, and we help to walk them out of that sin towards repentance. In what? In love. It's all love. We don't just give up. We don't write people off in the body of Christ. We pray for them. We strive to love them. We think the best of them. We show compassion for them, for what they're going through, and then we pray that the Spirit would develop fruit in their lives, and then we rejoice with them when he does. That's what it means to love people in the body of Christ. Listen, it's never about you or me. It's not about us. That's the key. It's always about Christ and his kingdom, and it's about fruit-bearing for his glory. Listen, when I, make, 
When I put myself at the center of my life, when it's all about me, I don't love people very well. Have you noticed this about yourself? When you get self-centered and you start thinking everything's about me, you can't love well. But when I get things straight and I put Christ back where he belongs, at the center of my heart and my life, then I can go out and love well. I can love well. It's all supernatural. It goes back to what we read in the very first verse in this chapter. It all comes back to abiding in the vine. If you want to love people well, if you want to fulfill this command, abide in the vine. Amen? So would Jesus call you his friend? I hope so. I hope every, for everybody here, Jesus would say, yes, that's my friend. Take a look at the brief list on the screen again. Christ has given us some very tangible ways in this passage to discern the right answer. And that last item is so particularly important. Do you love your fellow believers with a biblical love? Is sacrificial, committed love for your brother and sister what motivates your life in the body of Christ? Listen, I, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll close with this. I'll say it again. This is just a healthy warning. People can mimic love in the church. People can fake it for a while. They can fake and mimic love in the church for a while. They can interact with you in pleasant ways. They can be nice to others here on Sundays. They can focus on saying all the right things at all the right times. They could be present at enough church events. They could even serve on occasion. And if they're able to keep their circle of acquaintances kind of tight and keep their relationships kind of shallow, they can appear for a time to be true friends of God. But eventually that profession of love for others is going to get tested, right? You can only go so long. Eventually it gets tested. And when the test comes, the truth of our hearts always come to the surface. That's why God allows us to go through trials because the truth about what's going on in our hearts come to the surface, right? So that we can deal with it. And what comes out of a heart of a person who's faking it is self-centeredness and a lack of grace and a refusal to forgive and grudge holding and things of that nature. It comes pouring out at the time of testing. And this is happening a lot in the church right now. We've talked about it here before. Church is going through a hard time right now. Whole massive amounts of people now deconstructing, walking away from, quote, organized religion. Why? Because I just don't like the people. There's so many hypocrites in the church, whatever. And they do it easily. You know why? Because they were never really at home in the church in the first place. They weren't saved. They weren't friends of God. So they were faking it. But then they got tested. So in contrast to the pretender who walks away, the true friend of God, and this is, I want to encourage you because this passage, it leaves us with a high standard. Like everybody here right now is looking at that list going, ah, I don't do that perfectly. Oh, I, could, I could improve in some of these areas, right? You're saying that. The friend of God may struggle, but they'll never blow up and abandon the local church. In fact, staying put and, and coming through the, the testing and the struggle will eventually produce greater maturity in that person. Because they didn't walk away, but they worked through the struggle. They'll come out on the other side with greater faith and maturity. The friend of God might stumble at times, but they'll eventually own their sin and they'll repent and they'll seek what's best for the kingdom. The pretender doesn't do that. The pretender doesn't do that. He or she will make excuses and blame others and they will do that while taking a self-righteous stand as if they're correct as they point fingers at everybody else. That's not what the friend of God does. 
The friend of God may at times hesitate to do what God commands, but over time you will see them, a trajectory of them obeying more and more, not the pretender. The pretender will retreat and become defensive and they will justify their sin every step of the way. So there's a very stark contrast in this. Very stark contrast. So I'll come back to that question. Are you a friend of God this morning? And if you are a friend of God, then let me come back to the earlier challenge. How can you now use the truth of this passage to show other people what it means to be a friend of God? How can you give them a testimony of what God's done in your life and show them tangibly in your life, this is what it means to be a friend of God. This is the, the peace and the joy and the, just the love that we experience as a body. Are you prepared to go out and share that with other people? Listen, you cannot share what you don't personally own. So own this. Own all of the commands and the exhortations in this passage. And then let's radiate that out to other people. Amen? Let's talk to God about it. Father, I, I praise you this morning that, that every person in this room this morning who is your friend, that you've chosen them and you have drawn them to yourself and you have regenerated their hearts and you've brought them to life and you have justified them in your sight and they are now held firmly in your hand with an eternal future that is secure. What a promise we have. But Lord, my, my prayer this morning is, is that we might go beyond that now to fulfill the commands that you've given us in this passage, that we would become a people here at Oak Hill who are known for our love for one another. Not in a surfacey way, but, but in a real, authentic love that comes from the pattern that you've set for us. Lord, these are hard things for us. You know that. You know our nature. You know everything about us. And so I pray that your spirit would change us where we need to be changed, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, and you'd encourage us when we're doing well, when we're doing things that are pleasing in your sight, Lord. I just thank you for what you're doing at Oak Hill. Thank you for the way you're building this church. It is your church. We acknowledge that this morning. We thank you for baptism and, and new life in Christ. We thank you for your table that we get to come to tonight, for all the things that you have given us, Lord. We are a privileged people. So we praise you this morning in Jesus' name.